It's possible CD is going to come down on Magnus for insinuating a guy's cheating with no evidence because he felt like it. He's like, yeah, that guy wasn't nervous at the right moments, and I almost didn't play in the tournament. You know, Fide should, should do something to Magnus, not to Hans. Level four hype train. Go hype train. No, I mean, it's good for me. And it's good that everybody's wrong. Everybody's like, yay, Hans is a cheater. Go Magnus. Magnus is fighting for truth in chess. Bullshit. He's not fighting for nothing. He lost, and he's acting like a little bitch. He's complaining because he lost the game in the Sinkfield Cup. He's not complaining about cheaters in general. He didn't complain about Hans before that game. He complained after he lost. He's not complaining about cheating. He's complaining about Hans cheating against him in a game where he didn't cheat. Just remember, on Wikipedia, at some point it's going to say Magnus Little Bitch Carlson on his Wikipedia page. Because it's, it's, it has to say that. It has to be truth in advertising. Are you going to host me up? Um, I am going to host you up, and, and we're recording. We can keep this as far as I'm concerned. Let me turn you into the host. I'm pressing my little button, make host. There you go. Um, yeah, so we're up to date on our um, Zoom program here. That Thank God we have this uh, Zoom that we can talk endlessly on. Yes. <laughs> thank God we can talk Thank endlessly. you to our patrons, which is why we have that. It, I was going to say that, that it's directly related yes. to the people who have donated on our Patreon page, which you can find by Googling the agency podcast is making essay, is making podcasts on, um, on, on the Google machine. And you'll find it. And I shared it on Instagram today and on Facebook. And maybe we'll share it a couple more times. Even a dollar helps. We really appreciate you listening. And yeah, if we're, we're not trying it, to get rich here. Um, yeah. we're, we're just trying to pay the bills, That's um, right. uh, which are which aren't really massive. But, you know, um, there's some uh, we have to pay for hosting and, yeah. and that kind of thing as well. Yeah. And uh, and there's swag, which we like to send to people. Right. So we we like to make up the swag and send it to people. So, yeah, if you feel thank you for listening. And if you feel like supporting us, even a dollar a month helps. And uh, you've got options on our Patreon page. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Hey, how are you doing, Eugene? I'm doing well. Hey, we, we have to start. We have to do the official start. Do we? Okay. Because I we? like it sometimes when we just roll. When we just roll and we yeah, don't count whatever. in? I don't know well, if I could do a podcast, but I, I don't know. count in. Well, I think the problem is, yeah, to count us in, but then you're going to decide what you're going to keep or cut out. So um, go ahead and count us in. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Agency Podcast. Eugene here in Toronto. And Candy here in Connecticut. I'm in Norwalk, Connecticut. And I'm telling you, did, I've did had... They, sorry to interrupt. Did they name the flu after that? No. no was the it Norwalk, Norwalk virus? I thought it was well, Norwalk. Well, it's Norwalk. Okay. Yeah. I was just checking. Yep. No, because I, because that would make it a very unpleasant town, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. It's a, and it's a very pleasant town. I'm telling you. Oh, there you, you go. I love this place. Um, Westport is just about five minute drive from here and it's bougie as hell. And I have to say, I kind of like it. That's where Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward used to live. Joanne oh, Woodward wow. probably still lives there. She's in uh, long-term care. She has Alzheimer's 
And I know this because I watched the Ethan Hawke, the last movie stars. And I think I, I think you couldn't get it on your, on your mm. service. So we didn't really talk about it, but it's a really good documentary. Very interesting. And um, so I've been exploring Norwalk and um, it's so cute. I've been here a number of times. And during that time, I never realized that I know people who have had history here. So in fact, Catherine, who was area panel in New Mexico for a few years when I was first doing the conferences, you know, every, they have someone who decides to read the papers and select who's going to come into the conference, right? And where they're going to put you in what area panel. And she was the head of that. And it turns out she lives very nearby. I sent her a picture of Dennis McCarthy that I took last week and sort of told her about the conference. And then it came up that she's about 15 to 20 minutes away from me. So we're going to meet tomorrow and um, have dinner. Nice. Yeah. And she's coming on the podcast really soon after October 19th. Uh, she's going to talk about zombie movies and male fragility and the, re the relevance between those things. So I think it should be good. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I always like previews. Hey, I have a preview as well. Tomorrow, oh, uh, I have my brakes. I have no front brakes left on my car. Oh, God. I've braked them all, so I'm down to back brakes. Yeah. And my, my mechanic suggested I really ought to get those front brakes done. It's a so good I've, idea. So I made an appointment for tomorrow, and I'm going to drop drop the car. It's going to take a few hours yeah. to get this job done. So I'm going to drop the car at uh, Elsino Automotive on Geary mm -hmm. Avenue, mm -hmm. which is the Davenport and Lansdowne area of Toronto. Oh. Uh, and then I'm going to walk down to Bloor Street and get on the subway. <laughs> and I'm going to take the subway across to Young Street and then down to Dundas, to Young Dundas Square. And in the northeast corner of Young Dundas uh, is a, an enormous uh thing called <laughs> little canada and oh. sheila's been to little canada and says it's great so uh, since i have a few hours to kill i thought i would go and explore little canada wow and is it food there i well i'm gonna find some food but little, <laughs> little canada little canada is it's a miniature canada no yes it's like a wow. like model railroad miniature oh but it's they've done the country Wow. And apparently it's like thousands of square feet and crazy detail. And one of the things that you can do there is you go into a miniaturization chamber and you get yourself miniaturized. Ooh. Um, and then you can buy a miniature you, which is okay. like, I don't know. Like an avatar? An avatar. Well, except that it's an object. You could buy a little miniature, oh. a little miniature you, like a toy soldier, like an action I'm, figure. Like an. That's right. I'm going to get a Eugene podcast action figure. Oh my god, and, this sounds awesome. And you can also, if you want, for I don't know how much money it costs to do this, you can have your little miniature Eugene inserted into <laughs> Little Canada. Damn it! Is that not cool? It's I want to do it. I'm cool. looking forward to you this. You have to. You have to. So I, I, I suppose uh, you, you know what this is like, don't you? It's so insanely like something very specific that I love, that I watch. What's that? It has a model and you insert yourself into it. Westworld. Oh, okay. Do you know, remember Westworld? They have a model of Westworld that they look at. And you, it doesn't, it defies the logic of our minds how you get into that world. We never, 
I don't think we really see people move into that world. That's right, because it's just inconvenient to have to explain <laughs> that. Really, if you just make it be so, it's better. Well, you know, with the make it be so is that that's what science fiction does, is that Gene Roddenberry, and I know we've talked about this before, and Ray Bradbury, um, they predicted things by just going to it, and they didn't always know the explanation of it. Uh, Ray Bradbury talked about wormholes, and he described time, and he, I believe event horizons, to the point that Stephen Hawking said that he did it before him. How cool is that? That's very cool. And Gene Roddenberry never explained why a Black woman had a job in the future. But she did have a job, and she was equal and part of a crew. He just leapt into the, here's the future we want. I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to put all the cast of characters into that. Well, and, it was a future full of stereotypes. But Tulu diverse stereotypes. Yeah, diverse stereotypes, stereotypes, but stereotypes nonetheless. And you're right. Uh, even a good stereotype. And speaking of stereotypes, stereotype. Lord help you if you were wearing the lo- the wrong colored shirt when yeah, you were red, when you got beamed down to the the, yeah. the, the, the the planet because you ain't coming back, buddy. That's right. <laughs> In the new Star Trek that I'm watching um, with Captain Pike, uh, it's on Paramount. Um, they actually play right, this guy with no body, right? He's just a head in a box. Yes, this is before he had oh, okay. his accident. Okay. He was a captain before he had his, um, his trauma. He um, trauma. losing your entire body. I would call it. Yeah. Trauma. Well, it does play out because he has nightmares. He's already seen that that's going to happen. For some reason, somebody predicted his future. So he's vaguely, he's aware that he's he probably got a thought. reading from Dr. K. He probably got a reading from Dr. K. But what's really funny is that they play out a romance between Christine and Spock. Ooh. Remember do- the doctor's assistant? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, they've got their young and they have a little romance. It's really cute. A Spock romance. That sounds uh, Oxymoron. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. So what else did I have done in Norwalk? Well, I, we went out for dinner. Um, my host's birthday, Fusion, he had his birthday on Saturday. And um, no, on yeah, on Saturday. We went out for a fantastic dinner in Westport. Italian food, carbonara. Oh, my God. We just, we had uh, mussels. Oh, it was so good. Mm. Mm. I can't stop thinking about the carbonara. It was such a special treat. And, you know, I uh, love mussels, but... I really only like mussels if I'm out at a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was at my local fishmongers one day uh-huh. and they were selling bags of mussels. Mm-hmm. They come in like a mesh bag yeah. and it didn't look like a big mesh bag. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, when you go to a restaurant and you get a pile of mussels, it's a lot of mussels you get, yeah. but there's not really that much to them. Right. But I could tell you that this bag of mussels <laughs> is like a TARDIS. It looks like it's a small amount of muscles, but in fact, it's an infinite amount of muscles. And when you do them up and you you have more muscles than, well, Sheila won't eat muscles. She looks at me and she goes, yeah. So I'm there. I've I've made up these muscles (laughs) and I've got enough muscles for the whole street. Oh my God. And I'm like trying to eat them all. And it's like, I can't eat another muscle. Come on, eat another muscle. You could do it, Eugene. I try to eat another muscle. And then it's like, do I even like muscles? I've eaten so many muscles. I'm going to have like a muscle gut. Right. Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to do that next time in town to share the muscles or something. Yeah. Um, there's a place on 18th that uses lime 
and the spice that you got online. I forgot tagine. No, how do you say it? Tagine. Yes. Yeah, they put that on the mussels, and it's really same with limes. Yeah, it's really good. Almost like you do the mango. <laughs> wow, it's really good. So that I would even chop mango in there. What the hell? Eh? I know it's so good. Um, and uh, one of our other listeners, it occurred to I knew she came up from New York, and she was artist. You know, Steve and Susan. Um, Steve's been around on the, they listen. Well, it turns out that Susan lived here for a long time. So I went lurking around her old neighborhood and her houses and it was so much fun. I feel like I know her better. Um, Does she know you've done this? That you, yeah, you, I told her I was you, doing you've it. You've lurked, you lurked around her past. I know. I said, I'm going to be a creep That's, and lurk it's around. It's kind of creepy. It's so creepy. I know. <laughs> and I did tell her, do you feel like you've been stalked? Like I, I knew it was like creepy. Um, and, and I told her, I was upfront about it. I think I, I sent her a picture right away of look what I've done. <laughs> Cause you're only as sick as your secrets. So if it's not secret, I'm okay. You know, and, I was once uh, out on a, a drawing day, uh, with, um, uh, with, I guess Sheila was there and Ron Bloor and we were out, uh, out painting and drawing for the day. We were doing this on a regular basis at the time. We'd go out and remember. find some landscape and, and draw yeah. and paint it. And we were in, we we're north of Brampton. And on the way back, out of the blue, Bloor said, I grew up in Brampton. Do you <laughs> mind if we could, we, could we drive by my old house? Wow. And we did. We found his old neighborhood and we drove by mm. where, where he used to live. Mm. And then he said, okay, that's it. Let's go. Yeah. He was yeah. like, he just wanted to just glance at it and then get out of Dodge. Because yeah. I don't need to be here ever again. I just yeah. wanted to see it again. Yeah. But, well, I never go by where my grandmother had her house in Calgary. I just don't want to see it. I know they would have torn the house down. And I just don't want to see it. It's in my mind. And mm. it's still there. And um, That's best. I, yeah, it's best. I did go by um, our family home in Winnipeg once or twice. I think I took stag there too. I mean, it was, you know, pretty uneventful, but it was, it's weird because it's so small. You're thinking it was such a big house when you're mm. a kid and it's so small and the, the yard and the street looks different. That's where I had my um, pet squirrel peanut. Oh yes, indeed. We <laughs> haven't heard from your pet squirrel in some time. <laughs> I know the one that escaped, we had him for ages and he had a broken tail and that's how I knew I always saw him in the neighborhood because he had a distinctive stubby tail. <laughs> Oh, and the cats and the dogs and my grandmother Winnipeg's very very cold we lived with our grandparents and she had these two Datsuns Herman and Fang and she had a dog house out there and in the winter she would fill up her booze bottles with boiling hot water wrap them in a towel and put them in the um, dog house to generate heat for the dogs like their own hot water bottle and really if you know you have to do that, that means you're going to have to drink some booze in order to generate the bottles, really. My grandmother had no problem doing that with, <laughs> with her barbiturates, apparently, oh, which lovely. I had no idea of at the time. But what was cool was when the snow melted. But she was always strangely pleasant. True. Yeah, she was. She was very pleasant to me and my, my sister. And in the winter, after the snow melted, there'd be all these booze bottles all over the backyard. <laughs> Oh my, should yeah. laugh at, at people's uh, <laughs> bad habits. Uh, <laughs> no, it's really funny because the dogs would drag them out of the house and bury them or something, right? And they did not stay for listeners who are worried that we tortured our dogs all night. No, they just would go out for a, an hour or two. She just liked to make it so they could go in their little house if they wanted to. 
Right. Yeah. But so I have to do a, a public service here. Okay. The Comfort Food Diner public service. Oh. It is a very evil season of the year known as pumpkin spice season. It is. In which in which corporate giants turn everything into pumpkin spice, <gasps> right? And, you know, to the point where I once could enjoy pumpkin spice, but now the whole idea of pumpkin spice anything is really, really disgusting. Well, <laughs> our neighbor down the road, Stefan, uh -huh. fabulous guy, he, yeah. he grew uh, South African, well, he grows every year South African pumpkins. They're mm -hmm. the white ones. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Right, orange inside, but white on the outside. Crazy. And they're huge. And he grows yeah. tons of these things and supplies the neighborhood with, <laughs> with their more pumpkins than they need. So um, uh, we were given a quarter of one of his really huge pumpkins, which okay. was more pumpkin than we would eat in about three years, <laughs> usually. Yeah. Uh, so we have this problem. We have all this pumpkin. What are we going to do with it? Yeah. And we don't want pumpkin spice. And you don't want pumpkin pie. We don't want pumpkin pie. Right. So first, first thing is I remembered when, when Sheila and I first started uh, dating that Sheila's mom made sweet potato biscuits Ooh. that were just to die for. Wow. And they weren't all loaded up with like pumpkin spice flavor. Right, right. Um, and I looked into this and uh, it turns out it was a Martha Stewart recipe. That of course, it uh, all comes back to Martha. I guess it does. You know, um, <laughs> basically it's, you could do any biscuit recipe you know, any biscuits that which you cut in the butter, right? It's your mm -hmm. basic traditional biscuits, but you use for your liquid, you use, um, you roast up some pumpkin and you mash it up and you add some buttermilk and uh -huh. that becomes the liquid. Make sure you don't over mix it. You just fold it a couple of times. You, just, you make the dough and uh, you get these biscuits that are so good. I recommend you add a little more salt than the recipe calls oh, for, and then yeah. grind in some pepper to make yeah. them a little bit on the savory side. Nice. Instead of on the pumpkin spice side. And wow. man, oh man, oh man, oh man. <laughs> I use pumpkin instead of sweet potatoes because I had the pumpkin, but I yeah. remembered the sweet potatoes and I figured orange, orange fall vegetable. What's the oh. difference I can substitute, right? Turns yeah. out you can. They were the yummiest biscuits. The whole batch of biscuits somehow disappeared in our in our house in in minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it was well, really quite spectacular. That's so cool. So, Go ahead. I so I'm going to recommend that no cinnamon, no, no cin nutmeg, right. salt, pepper, fresh ground pepper, um, and they are super yummy. It brings out the actual flavor of the pumpkin, and mm. it's a way to consume your your fall vegetables without the dreaded pumpkin spice right i have um, a question yes oh, when you're ready uh, well the other thing that we that we did with it was we chopped it up into like three quarter inch cubes mm -hmm. put it in a bowl pour it on some olive oil and added some um savory spices i used uh uh herb de provence Mm -hmm. because I like it and yes. I like the smell of it and it doesn't <laughs> yes. smell like pumpkin spice. Correct. And lots of olive oil and you, you roast at a high heat. You want to roast it down because if you do it at a high heat, what's going to happen is you get a little bit of crustiness on the, mm. on the outside as it starts to caramelize mm. and then it gets kind of soft on the inside, but it doesn't get all mushy. It sounds um, amazing. And it's so good. I'm telling you, it is just wow. yummy, super delicious. And um, 
you know, I saw Stefan the other day and he said, well, you know, I, I have a pumpkin <laughs> reserved for somebody and, and it looks like that might be canceled. So there might be another pumpkin for you. Wow. And you said, hell yeah. Well, yeah, because it was so good. Wow. Well, so that's I'm my not... public service, my PSA. Thank you. What I'm curious about, and I, I also have comfort food diner stuff. Um, what did you do to the, I, I, you may have said it and I may have missed it. I'm sorry. You're making this recipe. How do you do the potatoes or the pumpkin? Do you have to pre-cook them or do you oh, shred yeah, you them? Do. You do. What I, what I did was I, uh, I, I tossed cubes of cubes of pumpkin with just a little bit of olive oil and some salt and, um, and just, uh, roasted them down okay all until, right until i could uh mash them with a potato mash. okay thank you so yeah, I there's um no no food processor was harmed during the making of <laughs> uh of uh, uh the biscuits uh so i just i just roasted them mashed them with the um with the potato masher and then i poured in a little bit of buttermilk none nice. of this did i really measure Right. Um, and right. I just poured a little bit of buttermilk and then I, I mixed it all up and that right. became the liquid for my for my biscuits. Very nice. And you put in rising um, agents. Uh, I put in a baking a baking powder okay. and and a little bit of baking soda. Very good. Um, and I believe I used two. I did consult a recipe for this because I think it's the one thing you have to get right. I believe I used two teaspoons of baking powder and half a teaspoon of baking soda. Right. But that has to be accurate in relationship to the ratio of flour. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and the fact that I failed to actually, actually measure the flour um, may have uh, skewed it, but it didn't. As it turned out, it was perfect. Yeah. And also you are measuring when you're guessing, you're still guessing, kind of, you're looking at it. You're kind of, you're just eyeballing. That's right. and, and you know what it should look like if you've right. done anything like that. So right. uh, I, it's the kind of baking I can handle because I don't have to yeah. get all fussy about the measurement. Right. And I mean, some people, they weigh all their ingredients. The day I have to weigh my ingredients for anything, that's going to just take the love out of it. Right. I've worked in kitchens where I had to weigh it and you have to weigh it. You've got somebody who's your boss and they're telling you to, and you know, you just do it. Well, of and course you, you have, have to, because, because yeah. they have to budget for, for yes. the food. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also chemistry, it's chemistry. Uh, so you, you're experimenting and that's, that's fine. I don't experiment until I get used to a recipe. Um, what did I make this week? Oh, you know what? When you put salt and pepper on pumpkin, it becomes pumpkin spice. <laughs> it's just not cinnamon and nutmeg. <laughs> it becomes pumpkin-y, but it doesn't have that insipid pumpkin spiciness. I know. You know, it's funny. I never liked pumpkin pie for the longest time growing up. I, I couldn't I couldn't stand it, which I think is common. It's such a, a strong taste for yeah. kids. I, just yeah, I didn't like it growing up either. Yeah. And then I loved it. Yes. And then it became, it got marketed <laughs> to pumpkin spice everything. And then it's like, right. please, just no pumpkin spice. I know. You you probably read the articles where they say, you know, they've done studies with cinnamon that it 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 um it opens up your serotonin levels or something. Mm -hmm. It does something like that. And that's partly why people like it. They they like holding the warm mug, they like the smell of it. It's a favorite time of year. But um I like when I went into Stu Leather. I, I don't I don't drink eggnog either. I'm just saying. No, I know. It's texture. Um, there's a great, one of the greatest grocery stores. As much as I love Trader Joe's, I fucking love Stu Leonard's in North Norwalk, Connecticut. 
if you ever come here, you have to go to the grocery store. It's the best grocery store in the world. And, <laughs> and, but when you walk in the door right now, they've got pine cones and cinnamon, but I like it. I like it. I'm in the mood for it. And I bought a black cat Halloween cat there for Halloween decoration that I'll take back to Chicago. Right. Yeah. We tried to get one last year, but they were sold out and they brought them back this year. Yay. <coughs> so I have a comfort food diner. Okay. I have cooking. I did cooking. Um, I'm a guest and my host had their birthday. So I got into my mind. I ran over to Stu Leonard's and I got ingredients for chocolate brownies and mm -hmm. for Mary Berry. You know who that is, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Mary... For the Great British baking thingy. That's right. Because it's back on. I've watched two episodes of the new season. But oh, the, the new one's on. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's good so far. But the original one had Mary Berry with Paul Hollywood. And Mary Berry... Yeah, she's, I thought she retired, but then she showed up on some other show. Yeah, yeah, she probably retired she from got, there. Yeah, she just got bored from doing that same <laughs> show. And maybe she just got, like, irritated with the guy or something. Maybe. And they've changed, they've changed people. I loved, the, I loved all the hosts, but I really love Noel Fielding. He's my favorite. Um, he just makes the world a better place. So Mary Berry's Victoria sandwich. I made her Mary Berry's um, Genoese cake. And Genoese cake is like, it's a sponge cake. And um, she has jam that she puts on it. So I have made one before about during the quarantine. I think I talked about it here that I thought, oh, because that's I didn't start watching the Great British Baking Show until the quarantine. It became my comfort. In fact, I was at your house, I think. When I started watching it, um, just to like, oh, my God, help me sleep or something. Um, so um, it's a really old recipe, maybe 19th century. But it comes from Ladyfingers and Catherine de Medici. De, um, Catherine de Medici, not Me Medici. Medici. I think our listeners would, would have understood, too. Yes, yes. You know who Carry she on. The bad lady. She, the Medici family. They're... Uh, <laughs> Corporate whores um, of the 15th century. <laughs> so uh, she um, she uh, had those lady fingers. So it's it's it comes from that. Um, but it, it's a really fun cake to make because I was very nervous and there was not the adequate normal cake pans. So I had to make a big sheet of it. And my intent was I'll make a big sheet of it and cut it up which mm -hmm. I did. I cut it up into four and stacked it up. So you use three eggs. This recipe, I made a very small amount because I'm just making it for one person. I really wasn't sure if it was even going to come out. I was quite nervous. So three eggs and half a cup plus one tablespoon of flour. So you can hear that ratio. And what you do with the, the difference between a sponge cake that we might make in North America is that we separate our eggs here. But this Italian British recipe puts all the eggs together. And I actually had to go get a hand beater because we didn't have one around here. And you whip the eggs for about 15 minutes till they turn white and they they triple in size. It's actually a lot of fun to, to whip them because they just become like whipping cream. And you do it until they make rivers coming off the blenders, like uh, ribbons, ribbons, of rivers of ribbons of eggs. And then you mix in this little tiny bit of flour and I put in baking powder which I wasn't really sure if I had to but I did put it in with the eggs and vanilla and butter and sugar and uh, bake it for about 10 minutes really fast 15 minutes maybe and then I let it cool 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 and in the meantime I made strawberry jam according to Mary Berry 
you basically take a potato masher and mash a bunch of strawberries and add sugar to it, no water, and you just boil it for about four to 10 minutes on low heat. And so I, once the cake cooled, I sliced it up and then I layered it up and I took a picture. Did you take a picture of your biscuits? Mm. Maybe. No, I think I just ate them. Okay. Well, <laughs> I did take a picture. And so I layered it up and then smothered it in whipping cream. Now you could do it. The Victoria sandwich would be buttercream bubbles that you would put inside over the strawberry jam and then covering cream. Anyway, it did come out spectacular. It's a delicious strawberry shortcake, basically. Mm. And the brownies came out really good. I gave them to a neighbor that I'd, I've known on and off for a few years down the street because we've been here and really cool gal, Suzanne. So I took her some brownies. And uh, that's my baking foray. And I did take pictures, which I will share. All right. <laughs> I have to offer a chess update because, you know, we've been talking about the chess controversy. Oh, right. And you know, there's not actually a whole lot new, except one of the things that I discovered is that if you go onto the YouTube, mm -hmm. you'll see uh, several uh, chess commentators having uh, YouTube videos with headlines like more on the controversy and, you know, oh. every possible way they could do it. Right. And um, yeah, a couple of the commentators, uh, the guy from Gotham Chess, Levy, and Ben Feingold both said, this is great for us yeah. because they're making, they're basically making a living, yeah. you know, Feingold's got, I don't know, he's got uh, over a hundred thousand subscribers. Wow. You know, he's, if he has like a, 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 a headline that's, that's catchy and is around the controversy, which has made the mm -hmm. news, people show up on his stream and, mm -hmm. and they, they want to listen. And I, so I, I, of course, am one of those people. And I listen and he says, well, of course, you know, I put in the salacious headline. I mean, it's not exactly false, but of course it's good for me. It's yeah. good for me because he's making money, right? Yeah. Um, and apparently uh, the pandemic has been great for these guys because once the pandemic happened, lots of people started taking up chess. Mm. And so these guys started getting tons of subscribers. And now that there's a controversy, it's got even bigger. But Feingold had an interesting uh, take on it. He's a GM. Yeah. And he said, well, look, two weeks before. And you mean Grandmaster? Yeah, Grandmaster, yes. Yeah. Um, he's, uh, I think he's retired from chess now, but he's, okay. he's, he does, he's a chess pundit and he does streams and a chat YouTube channel and uh, makes a good living doing that. Um, he said, look, two weeks later in the previous tournament, Carlson didn't have any problem playing Neiman. They played two out of three. Carlson oh. won two out of three, and he didn't oh. complain. It's only when he lost a game that he complained. And so, um, so Ben Feingold on his on his YouTube channel called Magnus Carlson a little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> He's just being a little bitch. Yeah. Right. He's yeah. like, he's whiny because this, this 19 year old kid who shouldn't be that strong beat him. Mm. Uh, but he also suggested, and, and some of the other commentators have suggested too, you know, really strong players sometimes lose to much weaker players in an individual game mm -hmm. because anything can happen in the heat of battle. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes people come up with better moves than they ought to be able to make. And just because your rating is such and such doesn't necessarily mean you aren't capable of playing a better game. It might I, happen. I would agree. So, um, you know, Feingold's take on it is there's no proof that uh, that Hans Niemann treat, uh, cheated over the board. Okay. Uh, there's no evidence at all. Therefore, leave him alone. Yeah. Don't be a little bitch about it. Yeah. Uh, and sore loser. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, did he cheat online? Yeah. Does that mean he's cheating over the board? Not necessarily. And Feingold believes that many more people than we know cheat online mm. and that the there's no big penalty for it it's not like it's real chess real chess is over the board right. um, and so uh, it could be that that cheating is rampant online mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know i know in go they've caught cheaters yeah um there, there's one who is really an up-and-coming star who's been suspended because she cheated how did she cheat uh, I think it was like a cell phone in the bathroom or something. Oh, it's, it was like something really, really yeah. obvious like that. I yeah. don't remember the yeah. details. I, I, I could be wrong on specifics, but um, but it was some something like that. She was uh, she was consulting an AI. Yeah, um, and I don't know if that was online or or if it was in the in the tournament space. Mm-hmm. I'm really not sure. Right, but it was right. during the pandemic. Right. Um. So I know that it does happen. Mm-hmm. and uh that's not too surprising there's always people who are going to cheat at something or other yeah that is true as we previously discussed and so i just thought i would add to it because thank you. because it's fun and i it, yes. i never thought about the angle that the pundits are making a fortune off this yeah and i think that's pretty interesting that yeah, these guys have too. jumped all over it and they have all the salacious headlines because they want the clicks yeah it's been a good few years for um chess very good few years. Uh, yes, and and you know I think the pandemic has been quite good for uh, for streamers in general, YouTubers. Totally, uh, and the who Queen's are content Gambit. creators and the Queen's Gambit coming out in the deep of, in the heat of quarantine. Oh yeah, you know um, while I was working on um, uh, our Mosaic Commission, which yeah. is up by the way. Okay. Uh, yes, it was up, and and it's at um, it's at a home which was uh, the, the place that hosted this year's Bird Ball, which is uh, Margaret Atwood's charity, the, uh, the Paley Island Bird Observatory. Oh, wow. um, and um, these uh, male buntings uh, are up uh, joining some other birds that we've made around this house where, where the bird ball was hosted. We got it installed just in the nick of time. Oh, um, and I cool. think that went very well. I, lots of people commented on the birds, which is really nice. So anyway, while I was working on the birds, it's nice to have something going on in the background. And there's a TV in the room where, which is our mosaics workshop, as you know. Um, And so I started turning on um, episodes of the Queen's Gambit. uh, Mm. Because if you already know a story and you have it on in the background, you don't need to see it to reacquaint yourself with it. So I can glance over at it now and then and still work on the mosaics and still get some value from it. Whereas if it's a show that I hadn't really experienced before, well, you either have to pay attention or you don't and and otherwise you lose it. So so since I'd seen this before, I thought I would kind of enjoy it again. And I watched several episodes or, or kind of listened to several episodes while I was working on mosaics. 
Very nice, like a novel, like audiobook or something. Just like that, yeah. yes. Yeah, pretty cool. Except I could look over every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. And they certainly that, that actress is very striking because she has a very unusual look. She is unusual looking. Really? And very striking and compelling. Yeah, it's very and, strangely compelling. Yeah. And she's in a few more pictures now. She's in Emma, which I watched after that. It came up on uh came up on uh, Prime, probably because of the popularity of the Queen's Gambit. Yes, yeah, so she's in a few things. She's in the movie Amsterdam that's coming out. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Oh, yeah. I've seen a, some kind of advertisement. Yeah, that. it looks like a lot of fun. I think she's what, one of what's the that? What's that going to be about? Do you know anything about it? No, I don't. Maybe a heist? I, do, I don't remember. All right, well, we'll check it yeah. out. Yeah, it does look really good, though. It's, it's the same people who did American Hustle and Silver Lining Playbook. And okay. I love both of those. Uh, Flirting with Disaster. Russell, David O. Russell is the director. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Um, You know, I just read something this morning that was really interesting. I think you'll find this interesting. It was on Lisa who came in and talked about Mennonite food. Um, It was on her Facebook page. She had shared an article that someone noticed a correlation between Trump voters and chain restaurants. So, so is, is a suggestion that like if you eat at, I don't know, uh, AMW or Chick-fil-A or whatever, yeah. that you'll start to like it's like alien spores that, that change your thoughts and right. Well, that's uh, what they want, that's what they wanted to find out. They saw a correlation in the numbers, but they weren't sure what it was. So they did all kinds of looking into it. Um, it turns out that places that support Trump also have the most franchise foods. Most common was Kentucky, West Virginia, and Alabama. And then there's not so many franchise chains. In It's really about the franchise. They define that as over 50 stores with the same name. They're less common in Vermont, Alaska, Hawaii, Maine, New York, and D.C. And I'm curious. Yes. And then... There is a connection between more rural with lower education and income dropping. And those are the niches where Trump voters live. And But it really does seem to be what's the connection with the chain, all these chains in these areas. And it was not income. It was not age and it wasn't white population. It was completely linked to the workforce that drives to work every day. What does so, that mean? That people who drive to work are going to, with car culture, you've got chain restaurants and fast food. So the more highways and commuting you take, 83% I, of I workers... I don't know. People, lots of people drive to work who don't, who don't eat at fast food restaurants. Well, that's right. So here are some of the numbers. of workers drive to work in the United States. Only 80% are Biden voters, 90% of Trump voters. So he has more people who drive to work in these small rural chain restaurant places. I think that's stretching it to make that connection. I'm not, not, I'm not quite feeling the love on it. Maybe it's true. But it's not convincing to me yet. I need more. I need more right. proofs. Well, more I, proofs. Will, I will share that article and maybe you'll see something in it that's more convincing than me relating to it. Um, 
you know, the highway culture and car culture developed all these chains along every highway. Whereas when you're, um, and many cities have a lot of chains too. Um, I suppose people who are commuting on trains might change it. Hmm. Uh, just not seeing it. Not yep. seeing They're it. arguing that Trump won because of the places where most car commuters are commuting. That's where all the votes were with car more car commuters, which is pretty funny. Anyway, I thought I'd share that. Well, I thought it was really I mean, interesting. It's, it's suggesting that people who live in rural areas are more likely if they're working in the city to be car commuters. But I don't know if that logic follows that because you're a car commuter, you're more likely to vote for Trump. Maybe it's because you're a rural resident. Right. I think he's saying chain. I think they're saying that more chain restaurants are with Trump voters. I think that was the original argument. Uh, yes, but I think it may, may be coincidental. I'm not, I'm just not, I'm just not following the logic here. Yeah. Well, we'll, well, I'll share the, I'll share what they, they share. I'll share that article. Anyway, I thought it was really interesting. It was like a great uh, fun thing to see where are they going with this? You know, it's, it's not a long article. It's pretty, pretty, won't take up too much of your time and I'll put it on our Facebook page and that'll be great. All right. Hey, I finally finished Smiley's people. Oh, good. Oh my God. What a, I mean, what, what an epic book. Uh, It just, is so much more interesting, I thought, than the the series, which was great. Uh, Do you think I can read it like without reading other smiley books? Do I need to read more smiley books? No, first? you don't. You okay, don't. I think I'm going to make an effort. I think you should. I, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, mm. um, and particularly striking is the sadness of George Smiley's final success. Mm. Is not a is not a happy celebration mm. because he's not that different than his arch enemy Carla and and to to win the final battle with Carla was a very sad thing for Smiley mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me yeah wow so anyway I got done with it I think I'm gonna avoid reading for a couple of days that was really a, a, <laughs> an epic wow uh, but but beautifully really beautifully written you know when, when I was a kid I couldn't read those books I just oh, found I them to either. be to be really slow and dense yeah me and too. now I really in, enjoy his writing isn't that it's funny so cool yeah well maybe change? I'm ready for it maybe I'm ready for it maybe it took all this time because I couldn't read them when I was a kid either I, I yeah I would say if, if you're so confusing if you're, if you're gonna read one mm-hmm and you haven't read one before, I would read Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy first. I mean, oh, you don't really? have to read it okay. first. Smiley's People is a okay. fine, fine book and stands on its own. All right. But um, but the heart of it all is Tinker Taylor okay. and and you really get into uh, Smiley's head in that one. And he's um, in his prime. Yes. Yeah. Well, he's sort of at the... Oh. Well, he's he's always in his prime in a way, but I mean, <laughs> uh, he's still seen as as aging and frumpy. Okay, okay, very cool. And that that's why he's a great hero because he's aging and frumpy, and right. I like aging and frumpy, you know. <laughs> so, have you been watching anything else besides the Queen's? Well, Gambit? I I took the old college try at watching Blonde, which you recommended. Oh, Blonde. Yes. Yes. And and I was looking forward to watching it because I know that the the music was done by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. Mm-hmm. 
And I thought, well, you know, they're, they, they do fairly depressing, but wonderful music um, that maybe that's going to be really good. And so we, we tuned it in and we started to watch it. And after the first 15 minutes of, of misery, um, we thought, oh, God, do we want to watch any more of this? So we fast forwarded it. Uh-huh. a little bit like 10 or 15 minutes right. and we watched 10 minutes of it and it was more misery and then we fast forward it another 10 minutes and it was more misery does anything good happen in this damn movie i mean it's okay first of all for people who don't know about it it's a reimagining of the life of marilyn monroe in which based on a novel by joyce carol oates in which um which mixes fact and fiction um and which seems to suggest that uh Marilyn Monroe was fated her doom was fated by her childhood um would you agree with that um do I agree with it I would say that all of our fate is comes from our childhood until we uh reckon with that everyone's childhood makes a cookie cutter press unless you look at it. If you, if you are unconscious and you're not aware of it. Um, when I was in group therapy, one of the exercises we did was an end of childhood exercise. And everyone had to write down privately what their end of childhood was. And that is when you feel the party's over. At the first time when you're a kid or a young adult, it could be you're 16. It could be, it could be when you go off to college. For some people, it's when they were very young. And you write down what what that was and what it felt like and what happened around you. And um, you write down a few other things, the next different, when did you get married? When did you go to college? If those are different times. And you're looking to see if there's any pattern, underlying pattern in those events and behaviors. And if there is, if it's destructive or if it's proactive and positive. And so if you do not notice that, and you are having destructive behaviors associated with your end of childhood, then you are going to be trapped by that. And um, it goes a long way to kind of notice when your end of childhood is and to heal childhood wounds, because if you don't heal them yourself, you will act them out in your marriages or your friendships. I just like to add that I personally (laughs) am not not nearly ready to grow up yet. Fair enough. I know when my end of childhood was. It was when my parents divorced. Like it was clear. It was very easy for me to answer. I wrote it down and wrote down the circumstances behind it. And then I wrote a few more. We we kind of worked on this thing. And mine was so profoundly pattern based that the the therapist in group therapy asked me if I would share it with the other um, patients. And I did. Um, So, you know, um, mine was almost like you could write it for a movie script. So I do believe that Marilyn Monroe, without the emotional support and the unanswered questions, was doomed to have depression. So for me, the movie is about um, mental health issues in the workplace, just like Elvis was about mental health issues in the workplace. And those mental health issues are one aspect. The other thing that the movie is about is the cult of celebrity. And like Judy and Elvis, um, we're fans. We love these people. We love these performers. And are we partly responsible for them being dancing chickens? You know, I I remember my daughter had to do a biography in school and do a book report. And she picked somebody she cared about and found out, and she was pretty young. She was about 11 or 12. 
11, she found out that this person had a very difficult life. And I mean, she was kind of traumatized from that and never really wanted to talk about it again, because here's someone that you love and you find out that unrelenting bullshit happens to them, you know, like, like other, just like other regular humans. Absolutely. Absolutely. I might add though, that the cult of celebrity that um, they are asked to be performative and performative at any cost to the cost of, is it true that the studio system um, pressured her into having abortions? I mean, it's to me, Blonde is a horror movie. It's not a biopic. It's a horror movie. And it's a horror movie like the movie Francis. Did you ever see that with Jennifer Lange? No. Not Jennifer Lange, Jessica Lange. Sorry, Jessica Lange. Um, I still didn't see it. Yeah, it's about Frances Farmer who had lobotomy given to her because she was an outspoken creative personality. And I mean, basically, um, Elvis and, and Marilyn Monroe were given drug lobotomies, in my opinion. Um, yeah, it's a very disturbing film. I couldn't believe I was still watching it. And yeah. it was not ending. Well, However, I yeah, feel it's, it was And that's a, when, when I say it was, it was disturbing, unwatchably disturbing, um, that doesn't mean it wasn't a judgment on it being good or bad. Yes. And certainly the, the, uh, the performance... Um, by Anna de Armas um, as um, as Marilyn Monroe was was incredible. I mean, uncanny. what a, what a uncanny great job, eh? Yes. Um, and, but I just found the movie. It's like I just don't want. I just do not need this in my soul. I don't need I to know. watch this. And and really, I don't. I just don't care enough about celebrities or Marilyn Monroe in particular to be that interested in it. Um, and I just didn't really want to watch it yeah really i I wanted to be a little bit more entertained i mean elvis was more entertaining and as was judy and i think both of those films helped you get through the difficult content by making it more entertaining well i I found this was not an entertaining film at all i think you've nailed the power of blonde i think you've nailed why i think it's brilliant is that they're not giving us that Here's your happy cup of sugar while we give her heroin. Here's your happy, funny moment. You know, one of the funny things I noticed um, in reviews I saw after I saw Blonde, I had no idea it was controversial. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll watch this. It's, uh, it looks good. It's based on Joyce Carol Oates' book. Um, and then this grinding horror film keeps pounding away at you. I mean, I was afraid I was going to have nightmares. However, in horror films, in horror films, they're really a lot different. A horror film has uh, an entertaining story arc, even if it's even if it's scary. Right, but Unsane doesn't. Uh, this was very much like Stephen Soderbergh's Unsane with Natalie Portman. You know, the horrible idea of being put into an insane asylum and not being able to get out. Mm. Um, so this had a non-linear vibe. That's very difficult. It was experimentally told, um, and I mean, so was Elvis, but. And it was unrelenting. It was just unrelenting. And I think that that is why it is brilliant because they did not allow us to have any escape. So this is the difference between you and I in the same way you thought 2666 was brilliant. And, and I just think, why read this? It may be brilliant, but why read this? I I guess that an author or a filmmaker, if they really want you to read it, if they want you to see it, if they want you to sit through it, they got to offer up some way to help you through it. And, and because this was so unrelenting, 
It said, after 10 minutes, it said, had enough yet? Because there's more and it's going to be all miserable. Are you up for this? No? Okay. Right. But this is the case in point. You're helping me explain what I feel, why it's brilliant, is that I don't think- That's my job is to help you with- Yes. No, I just think we're having a very different opinion. I'd like to figure out if I can articulate what mine is. And my feeling is that it's it's so important that it did not have that song and dance in it. There were moments where her humor was, so I was saying that one of the main things I noticed in criticism was once I looked at some afterwards, they said, oh, it didn't capture how funny Marilyn Monroe was. And I had a chill down my spine. Motherfucker, you don't get to be entertained by this. You don't get to sit there and have a fun time watching this movie because you're gonna miss the point of a woman's life. And there's a few movies I don't agree out there. with I don't agree with that. I think if you make a movie that is watchable but still has the same powerful content, then you've you've helped your viewer get to the content that you want by making a film that they want to see. But if you're going to offer them nothing but misery, then you can't be unhappy if people don't watch it. Well, I don't think the movie did just offer only one note misery. I don't think it did that. I don't think it had a happy resolution for fans. I don't think it did. It's 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 going to attract, as you say, you weren't a Marilyn Monroe fan. But look at the target audience. Someone like me is the target audience and um, who loves Some Like It Hot and loves um, Marilyn Monroe and the icon of her and Seven Year Itch. There's nowhere for me to go as a fan and as adoring her and even, oh, I'll hang her picture up on in the kitchen. There's nowhere for me to go without addressing the issue that her image cost her. And this is a fictional film, you're right, it's go further with fiction, but it isn't, it's, it's unrelenting because she has at least three abortions during it. I think we should show abortion. Absolutely. I think we should show corporate culture. I, I didn't even get to life. the abortion. Right. But I'm, I'm going to pin this down for you. I'm just going to tell you what, what was in yeah. there. In amongst all that, she did have love affairs and she did have friendships. And those were, some of them were positive experiences and some of them were not positive. She also had, like Judy Garland, had a corporatization of art making to possess her and own her and tell her how much she was going to make and how many drugs she was going to take and how much booze she was going to drink or not drink. So it had a very similar message as Judy. Only Judy's was put into a very traditional narrative that was entertaining and easy. This is not entertaining in that way. It's, um, it remi- it, you know, it reminds me of that, that interview uh, that I think we all read back in art school with, uh, with Mary Boone, who, who I think was re- representing the, the big New York painters of, of her day um, at the time. And she said, I want my, I want my, um, I want my artists to have serious involvements with, um, you know, have bad right. habits and bad habits and fast women. Right. Right. Well, because, because she wanted them needy. Yeah. And I guess for, for making a story like this and you, you know, there's, there's many movie movies about Marilyn Monroe that do show my favorite one is insignificance by Nicholas Roeg. It's an incredible one, but this one gave it a run for its money. Is it a feel good movie of the century? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think not. No. <laughs> but 
I don't know if a movie about Auschwitz should be entertaining or make me feel good or give me moments of humor. I know it's been done, but I certainly don't judge an artist. It doesn't have to have moments of humor to make it more watchable. I understand what you're saying. I thought this movie was extremely watchable. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Oh, we, we couldn't keep our eyes on it. Yeah, well, that's fair. It, it's not for you. And that doesn't mean it's a good or bad movie. That's it right. means it's I not a movie for you. It's yeah. not a movie for you. And I would say if anyone's interested in the cult of celebrity, in art making, in what it's like to be an artist and what it's like to be a performer um, and the dark side of that and our relationship as consumers and fans... How culpable are we? How much are we willing to demand them to be entertaining or to be healthy? And then the opposite is mental health in the workplace. Same as Elvis. That I think through COVID and pandemic, um, mental health has been covered by the media a lot more. And obviously there's been a number of movies um, relating the life of an artist. Um, One of the other movies that came out, and this is what I thought you watched the other day was Bowie. When you sent me the text saying you couldn't watch the movie, I thought it was the David Bowie movie. I didn't realize it was blonde. Um, So I was like, well, what bad thing happened at the beginning of the Bowie movie? I couldn't remember. (laughs) No, I just didn't watch the David Bowie movie because I... David Bowie is very important to almost all of my friends, not just as a musician, but as a cultural figure, as someone they looked up to, as someone they felt represented how they were, how they wanted to live or how they did live Mm -hmm. during that during that time. And I just missed all that. Yeah, it just he was just not never very. I always thought he was a supremely talented guy, super talented I uh, thought his music was wonderful, but I just wasn't that interested in David Bowie. Sure. He's culturally for me, it's just insignificant. Yeah. Well, Which doesn't mean it's not that I'm not taking away from all my friends for whom he was extremely significant. Right. He did I'm not, not inspire. He was not inspiring to you. That's fair. Yeah. Um, very inspiring to me. And so we did see the uh, Bowie movie, Moon Age Daydream, at the theater in uh, Stamford, Connecticut last week. And um, it, I really would only recommend it for true blue fans. Okay. Um, it's, it's like a film essay. It's nonlinear. And um, I loved it. And the music and the sound in the theater was fantastic. And so all of that, I would recommend. It's really well done. It's, it's got rapid fire montages. And then it's got a lot of exclusive interviews with Bowie and performance pieces. And it's all, all of it is except for one or two interview scenes almost all of it is recordings he has made in interviews so it's almost like the amy winehouse built Mm. on existing footage um what i loved about it now that was the feel-good movie of the year wasn't it that amy Winehouse. holy jeez but i I thought that was very watchable i couldn't take i could not take my my mind off my my eyes off of the amy winehouse footage at all mm-hmm. um and i'm not a big amy winehouse fan and i'm not sure why that is what it was about how they did that that drew me in maybe it was timely maybe it was timely and you knew she died maybe i don't know i don't know i i, I don't know um but i found it riveting and compelling what i really liked about the bowie movie moon age daydream is it's one of the best portrayals of the mind of an artist and um what he was for me is he was constantly protecting his own freedom to be an artist. And that's the difference between him and Elvis. They were both born on January 8th. And I thought it was really funny that they both had these massive movies come out this summer about them. And um, 
But Elvis really struggled in a different way to, to maintain his creative control, where Bowie seemed to always, he knew exactly how to protect that creative side of him and in his daydream side of him and the part that was going to be infinite and create new stories and images and music. Mm -hmm. um, so I found it, I found it very um, beautiful. I, I was afraid I was going to cry my eyes out, but I didn't cry at all. I felt really like good after it. Um, again, because of the non-linear and the obsessive kind of photography, it's not going to be for everyone. It's, I, I would say okay. Bowie fans, Bowie fans, music fan, Bowie fans, for sure. But I loved it 10 out of 10. I give Blonde 10 out of 10. I thought it was an absolutely profound movie about being an artist at the risk of having control systems. Right. To and I can't, I can't rate it because I couldn't get through it. Right. And, and that's fair. It's, it's, a, it's a very heavy, sad movie. And no one should have to watch that if they aren't in the mood for it. So, so we I also watched that. another kind of, a oh. much different kind of movie <laughs> the other day that Sheila found. Sheila finds most interesting films. I don't know how the heck she does it. Um, this one is a film from 2011. I think it's on Prime. It's called Premium Rush. Oh. I should hate this movie. Right. I should hate this movie. Right. This this is a movie about bike couriers. Yes. Right. Driving recklessly in New York City. It should be terrible. Oh. It has it has a plot, sorta. The mm -hmm. plot is the bike couriers have competition amongst one another, but there's also something serious. They have to get this package that's gonna save the uh, this woman's kid. And mm. it's so it's got like this whole plot element in it, but it has this guy named Wiley played by uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt. And he's like the most reckless of the <laughs> reckless. He rides a bike that is steel frame, no gears, no brakes, mm -hmm. because you don't want to stop. And <laughs> it has in lots of the scenes in it, it, he at full speed, it shows he, it, it shows the path he's considering taking in this split second of decision. And then it shows how he's going to get crashed and mangled. Mm -hmm. And then it shows another path and he's going to get crashed and mangled. And then he sees a, a completely ridiculous, reckless path that he's going to take. And he manages to do it and mostly um, not get beat up too badly. Anyway, <laughs> this movie reminded me of that last Mad Max film. It's oh, just yeah. the whole film is just, it was one great big bike chase. Um, <laughs> and in the same way that, that Mad Max was, was one great big car chase yeah. and everything else just, just kind of um, informs the chase, but it's yeah. really a chase movie and it's a splendid chase movie. It's, it's a super fun actioner featuring crazy bike couriers, super entertaining Um they try to throw in a little bit of plot, but I mean, the plot's insignificant. It's just one great big rush. Very I recommend cool. it. If you, yeah. need, if you need that kind of film, that's that's the one to go for. It's a hoot. Yeah. Yeah, I like that film too. Um, he's a great actor in general, that guy. Gordon Levitt. I like yeah. him. I mean, and I wasn't I wasn't buying for an inst an instant the the <laughs> The, the plot which suggested that this guy just finished law school but realized that that being a lawyer he never passed the bar never took the bar because he didn't want to sit in an office wearing a suit when he could be riding his all steel bike with uh no gears and no brakes recklessly uh you know i just accepted that it's like oh okay well um, i do have some authenticity for that 
Okay. In that year after the crash, lawyers, there was a glut of lawyers in the job scene and they couldn't work as lawyers. There was just too many lawyers. Oh, isn't that the, interesting? Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. And they often did branch out. And I, I have a few young lawyer friends from that era and um, they were volunteers at my job. And um, they said, we can't work as lawyers. Uh, we have to work as something else. Hmm. Um, some of them have become lawyers again, but there was a glut. Most interesting. Yeah. Sheila also found another super fun series. It's it's a British series. It's set in um, in Bristol, and it's called The Outlaws. There's two seasons of it, and it's it's a series that's about seven people doing community service for various <laughs> crimes that oh. they've done, and um, trouble ensues. They they come across an impossible amount of money, um, and of course, you know that the possible amount of money is really belongs to really, really bad guys who yeah. deserve far worse punishment than community <laughs> service. And then action and fun ensues. Now, why should this be good? Well, let's just look at two things. Two of the of the seven people. One of them is Stephen Merchant. Stephen Merchant, who was um, uh, one of the creators of The Office. Mm -hmm. So it has that same kind of um, very smart, clever, humor that mm -hmm. that we enjoyed from the office and then one of the other outlaws is christopher walken <laughs> <laughs> and christopher walken as usual plays christopher walken yeah which seems to be the only character he can play <laughs> and it's fabulous let's i could just just imagine somebody thinking hey let's let's insert christopher walken in this you think we could get him right. yeah he'd be perfect <laughs> so i mean he adds the Christopher Walken kind of Magic. really super dry humor uh, right. to the whole thing. It's clever, well-written, goofy, entertaining, weird mm -hmm. premise, and uh, completely enjoyable. I, I'm going to highly recommend this one. Cool. I'll check it out. And I think it's on Netflix, on the Netflix okay. machine. Very nice. Well, I went down a rabbit hole a little bit somewhere. I must have read... Uh, a review or a commentary that Patti Smith and Bruce Springsteen, they co-wrote a song called Because of Night and that they sing different lyrics. And Bruce- oh, I hadn't would, realized that, okay. Yeah, and Bruce would never have sung that one lyric. So the story behind it is that he had the song extra on the first, what was his first album? Whatever. I can't remember right now. Why am I blanking? Uh, on, I, I don't um, remember Bruce Springsteen's first album. Sorry. Okay, yeah, we do. We do, I'm just blanking on it. Um, darkness on the edge of town. Anyway, no, that wasn't his first one. That wasn't I don't, his think, first I don't think Born to Run was his first one either. No, it wasn't. So I think it was on Darkness. He was working on a hit extra music, and a producer said, Give me one for Patti Smith. She needs a hit. So he hadn't written all the lyrics. He had the basic chorus, he had the, the music. She needs a hit. <laughs> so give me a hit, man. Yeah, they wanted to get her a hit, and she describes it as she wants everyone in the world to like a song. She wanted to write a song that everyone in the world liked. That was a goal of hers. And so um, she wrote these That's lyrics. That's a pretty good goal. Yeah. That's not a bad goal. Not a bad goal. Um, and the lyric is that Bruce Springsteen doesn't sing. So I ended up going through Bruce Springsteen versions. Okay, um, so what does he sing and what does she sing? He sings a variety of things. He said, "Work all, I work all day. And he also says, what I've got, I've earned. What she sings is... Have I a doubt when I'm alone 
love is a ring, the telephone. So a guy wouldn't ring, would never sing that. Well, they might sing it, but he wouldn't have been able to sing it with conviction because guys don't sit by a telephone waiting for it to ring. Uh, women do. Okay. And, she, and I was surprised that Patti Smith, but she I did wonder about that. I, I, I don't know if that's true. I think that's a, that's an assumption about guys. Well, let's just say both, both are, yeah. Let's just say it's an older stereotype about phone calls. Mm-hmm. And um, she said she was waiting. Her boyfriend was going to call her late at night. So she obsessed writing the song, waiting for him to call. And I like the line, love is a ring, because it could also mean a wedding ring. Love is a ring, the telephone. And uh, so, but Bruce Springsteen does not, I could not find him singing those lines. Hmm. And I thought it was funny, what I've got, I've earned. <laughs> Instead of like, I'm waiting for a girl to call. Well, anyway, I mean, he was, was really selling, he was really selling this kind of working class fantasy. Was he writing it or selling it? Well, his his tunes were 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 so much around the idea of I'm the working class guy. Well, in that way, it appears that he wasn't really a working class guy. Well, I think he and Bob Dylan have that in common. They came up with a persona and a, a line of writing poetry that was going to cover those bases. Sure. And yeah, yeah, to yeah. me, it's fascinating that they knew what they were doing and what they're what they were appealing to, and they could sit and actually decide this is who I'm locking horns with you know I guess Bob Dylan locking horns with Woody Guthrie and Bruce Springsteen locking horns with Bob Dylan Hmm. and they both had this sense of who they knew who they were and what they were going to write write to and I mean I guess most poets and songwriters really do know what their what their area of expertise is but to be come out and know that and write anthems that represent that is pretty amazing and, and and their people knew it. Their people picked it up on it, you know, and became obsessed with them, both of those men, for those um, those ethics. Yeah, I would say in Bob Dylan's case, he, he didn't want to be pinned down in that. And so he, he said things like, I'm just a song and dance man. Sure. Which in the fullness of time, who would have thought that after, after 60 years of listening to that guy, we realized that, yeah, he really was just a song and dance man. Right. That's not a bad thing. It's a job. <laughs> Pretty interesting job, actually, yes. as it turns out. Yes. Hey, there's he's a, I think he's got a, a, a new book coming out in November. I'm looking forward to reading wow. it. I hope we read it. We both read it and talk about it on the uh, on I, the podcast. I will. I believe it. it's called The Philosophy of Modern Song. Oh, I love that title. It's just pretentious enough <laughs> yeah, it's just pretentious that's what I thought too I, I'm looking forward to it I can't wait I this is a very I think it's a book of essays I'm not sure but I think okay. so well I'm pretty chuffed right now I mean I've got a lot to look forward to I think on the 15th of October is Cormac's first book in in eight years and John Irving has a book on the 19th his a big novel he hasn't had one out for ages either oh he yeah that would be interesting I'm so excited. I can't stand it. And it's called the last chair or the last chairlift. I think it's called the last chairlift, hmm. which choked me I haven't me read out. a John Irving book in There in hasn't years. been one for years. Uh, but not even an older one. Right. I think I kind of OD'd. I was reading, I read a bunch of them all at once. Yeah. And it's like, oh, stop. Just stop. <laughs> I just can't. I, I just didn't want to. I just couldn't deal with any more of his books. I saw him read once. He was an, he's incredible at reading his own work. 
I saw him read a prayer for Onamini and it was like mind blowing. I went down to Harborfront with Carl, an old friend of mine, and we, we saw him read there. It was, it was amazing. He is so gifted at reading. Cool. His own work. Yeah. Yeah. Does he still live in Toronto? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not even going to say, I don't know. I'm not even going to guess. I really don't know. Okay. Yeah. That I do yeah. not know. Or was he like Prince who just flirted with Toronto? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Let's see. I'm trying to think of what else I might have watched this week. Um, oh, I watched Robin Hood. Um, and there's many, many Robin Hoods. But this oh, one and I... they're almost all bad. No, I love Robin Hood movies. I love really? them. Yes. A bad one is also good. Okay. Because it's Robin Hood. I remember the old TV show? Like I think saying, it was Richard Green in the, the TV shows. I didn't mind that. I it was, can't a, it, was a, it was bad, but I kind of I can't say it. I do remember that. I'm sorry. But, I mean, it's like a bad submarine movie. You know, come on. Um, so, it was, I think, 2014. It's a Ridley Scott movie, which is really strange because I see everything that Ridley Scott makes. Okay. And I just missed it with Cameron Crowe and Kate Blanchett. And it turns out it was kind of an origin story. It was before he became Robin Hood. So oh. it's a story of all that maybe few months beforehand. It's really good. It's, it was a lot of fun, a lot of action, a lot of death and murder. Well, you know what my father always used to say? No. Son, Robin Hood was right. There ain't no point in Robin the Poor. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, he had wisdom for everything. He really did have wisdom for everything. He really did. He'd say okay. things like, son, be it ever so homely, there's no face like your own. Mm-hmm. Say, Thanks, Dad. <laughs> and he'd say, he'd say, son, you must have music in you because none of it's ever come out. Oh, he's so bad. You know what he said to me? What? Was, hey, you know how you get freckles on your knees? Eating too many cornflake sandwiches. sandwiches. Yes, of course. <laughs> and then, like four days later, you realize who eats cornflake sandwiches? White trash. <laughs> I don't know. People like me, poor people. I don't know. But yeah, who eats it? Well, you know what? Cornflake does taste. Cornflake sandwiches do taste good with peanut butter. And his famous question, and I don't know where the hell he got this, was: Do you live in the city or do you ride a bicycle? <laughs> the only the only acceptable answer is I take my lunch to work. I oh, don't understand wow. it. Don't understand wow, it. complicated. Yeah, and he was a poet. And he was he wrote a poem. a poem, one poem, which he recited uh -huh. to me what ten million times. <laughs> Twas a beetle, very little wings could propel him faster than his fetal. <laughs> It's a really good poem. <laughs> <laughs> Something else, isn't it? Yeah. I just love the way he rhymed. Uh, I think that needs to be in a mosaic. That needs to be in a mosaic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Yes, so, indeed. Uh, this week, uh -huh. we've sort of been in the mood to just kind of hang out, chill out in the evening with, you know something on in the background that's just lightweight and fun and um and so we tuned in to back episodes of dragon's den yeah and you know i'm not a big fan of of that but having not watched it for a few years we kind of we kind of enjoyed it uh positives and negatives the positives are mm -hmm. 
people with ideas and dreams yeah. trying to find a way to, to make them a reality. Uh, the negatives, I thought, were uh, the rich folks who are funding these things really only fund things that they can scale up to become mega businesses um, in the ugliest of, of capitalist ways. Uh, but every now and then you see somebody who has a lovely little idea and they're trying to make a go of it. And um, uh, we were watching season 16, which was the not this year's season, the, the previous one. Um, and they had introduced a new dragon uh, Wes, Wes, uh, I forget his last name. Um, very interesting guy, very generous guy. Mm -hmm. Um, he's, he's a guy who's, uh, he's, um, he's got lots, he's trying to get lots of major corporations to sign in, sign, sign up with an idea that I forget what he calls it, but the, the idea is basically to, um, to, to try to promote um, more uh, black voices in business. Okay. Um, and he's really trying to get a lot of businesses to say, we're gonna, we're gonna try to mm -hmm. uh, hire more black people in positions of power um, and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, and to get more businesses focused on changing their dynamic and becoming more diverse. Um, and he's also shown on this season a lot of generosity to um, to people of color who are are who really have a lot more adversity in trying to get into the business yes. world and try to give them a, a boost. And yeah. I think that that's cool and it adds some humanity to to a show which could be kind of just ugly in a way um, because, after a while, you just really get sick of these um, self-righteous rich people telling you what you what, what you ought to do to run your right, own business. Right. And but you know, I, I do. I did. I have enjoyed just watching the dreams of people. Yes. Uh, and a lot of times, it's like people who have no idea how to run a business, but they got a lovely idea or they right. have a recipe. Um, yes. You know, and every now and then you find some people. Like we watched one last night. These guys. Um they discovered that the business, they've got into the business of buying old wrecks of RVs and mm -hmm. salvaging them for parts, Super cleaning cool. up the parts and reselling them as used parts for new RVs. Because wow. it turns out parts are pretty standard. Um, and they've developed this really significant business wow. from, from, you know, buying junk and huh. taking it apart and, um, and reselling. It's very, very interesting. Uh, and there were a number of people who had some really, really charming and beautiful and ideas that can maybe make the world better. And that was kind of nice yeah. to watch. So I, I have enjoyed that, even though sometimes sometimes it's just too much dose of capitalism for me to handle. <laughs> right, right. When, in fact, you're hoping, isn't it, isn't a goal that you make a living and you make a living enough to take care of your family and friends and it doesn't have to go out of hand. Like, exactly. And you know what, and you know what the, the dragons call that? They call it, oh, that would be fine as a lifestyle business. Right. So right. they they separated want. I want a lifestyle. Yes, I'm trying lifestyle to get a lifestyle business, my whole which life. Is, which is I I would translate that to a good way to to roll through the world. 
um, <laughs> right? Without without doing something at the expense of other people, uh, which tried to create a niche for yourself where you could get by and, and live more or less comfortably for you and your family. Yes, I and- think that's all very positive, but they just dismiss that as a lifestyle business. Totally. And what they want is a scalable mega business, right. you know, get more SKUs. And, and it's like, Oh, please. Right. And that's that same kind of dismissive attitude that, um, oh, you're an artist. Well, you're not famous. So you're not really an artist. Exactly. Um, That's like saying, if you're a lawyer and you're not Johnny Cochran or Alan Dershowitz, you're not really a lawyer. You know, this, this using celebrity and wealth as our yardstick is ridiculous. That's right. When really you're just trying to make a living and, and have a job that you find very satisfying to to live a creative life and live a creative life. And you're doing things that it may not be the exact product you thought you were going to make, but you love the process of making it and getting it to people. Um, Did you think you were going to be a pastry chef? Yes, but you're making the best um, ramen noodles instead. You know what I mean? Like, and that's creative as well with pastry on the side. (laughs) Speaking of which I've been making a lot of soup lately. Oh, you know, just qu- quick soups. Uh, I've discovered the wonders of dashi, uh, and and I have What's a little dashi, dashi is um, dashi is a, a Japanese concoction which is the base of miso soup. Okay, and and there's various different um, versions of it, but you can buy it in, t- in a tub over okay. at your your Asian market, and a spoonful of that um, boiled up in water makes a um, makes a. a a meatless um, soup base, which is basically miso soup, mm. um, in which you can. Well, I'll. Why is dashi not miso? What's what's the difference? Oh, I can't answer those okay. questions. It's a, right. big, it's a big bundle of confusion okay. for me. Okay, I'll but go and I, try and figure that out. But okay. I understand it enough that I could buy a buy a tub of dashi okay. and I can make soup from it um, very very fast. And also in my Asian market, I'll get some um, some pre-steamed noodles mm-hmm. that I, you just have to drop into boiling oh, yeah. water for 30 seconds, run run some cold water over them, Yum. and then drop them into your soup with your dashi or Yum. with some dumplings. Um, you could drop in a sliced up hard-boiled egg. You mm. could drop in some leftover meats, slice up um, some scallions, uh, some hot chilies. Mm. Uh, you could throw in a little bit of fish sauce. And, and you can make really wonderful, uh, essentially ramens, uh, very, very fast that are uh, a lot healthier than your, your packaged and, factory yeah, ramen. Packaged. Um, and still super easy. Yeah, still super easy. So, you know, it's become like a comfort food lunch staple for me is mm. to uh, make, up, make up some noodles, make up a quick soup and uh, yeah, super yummy. Yummy. Sounds yummy. Sounds good. Oh, well, well, it was great talking to you. It was good talking to you too. Yeah, so where I, are you going to be next week? I should be back home. Yeah. Unless okay. I stop in Toronto. <laughs> well, you're always welcome. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. You're always welcome. Cross my mind. I'm sure Stag's looking forward to you getting he back is home. very much. I feel so crummy him not being with me because I'm used to him on this kind of a trip being with me. Sure. And, uh, you know, he likes doing what I like doing and stuff. So 
course. Cool. Um, again, thank you people for listening. We really appreciate and it. Special thanks to our, our patrons who are pay, paying the bills. We really yes. appreciate that thank too. Thank you. Which doesn't mean that you have to donate money because it will always be free. That's right. Somehow or other, we will, we will keep it free until we, uh, until we stop. Yes. And um, if you feel like writing us, what you think about, did you watch Blonde? Was it intolerable? Did you watch Elvis or Bowie? Or what are you reading? You can email us at theagency.podcast at, at email.com. <laughs> and we'll be back at you next next week. Same bat time, same bat channel or whatever. Exactly. Big hugs. Bye. Bye.